Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. All right, everybody. We're here again. You heard from us just a few days ago, so we're going to keep this intro really short and sweet. On Monday, we put out the first part of this episode with Kindell. As we were recording it, though, we had too many questions, and so we had to separate it into two different episodes. So if you haven't listened to episode 77, you might want to go back and listen to that one to get a full picture of what we're talking about. Um, you can just start here too if you would like to, but you'll get the full picture of what we talked about with Kindell if you go back to episode 77 and then follow it up with this episode, which is episode 78. Yes, and I would like to add that even if you are not a parent, this is a helpful episode because it is really helpful to understand how the brain works in different scenarios and at different stages in your life. So if you're a kidless widow, don't just write it off. Don't get scared. Yeah, I promise it's okay. Yeah. I've heard it already and I'm a kidless widow. It's very fascinating and informative. Yes. And thanks again to Kendall. She's so great. We really appreciate that she is willing to do a whole other recording session with us so we could answer these questions. So thanks to her. And thank you to everybody who submitted questions. The questions that we asked her were ones that were submitted to us by our listeners. We'll get to it, shall we? Yes. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're two young widows and Kendall's helping us to try and figure out widow. Widow. The now. kids do now. Mm -hmm. 
And now we're back. We could not possibly let you go without getting all of these questions out because what you were telling us was so good and we didn't want to leave out all of the people. So here we are again. Thank you for being back here, Kendall. You're welcome. This is our friend Kendall Marcroft. Glad to be here, ladies. This is a privilege. Let's talk about the tiny tots. Yes. So when we left off, we were talking about little little ones who are uh, infant, toddler, and even if the mom was pregnant while the dad died. That was a really awkward way of saying that. So we're talking about our little ones. And uh, when we were last talking about it, we were talking about how a lot of the parents of those little ones run into people saying that they don't grieve. And we had kind of said, okay, not, we're not going to say that. That's not true. And talked a little bit about how the studies show that even upsets in the system for uh, babies who are in utero still affects their um, well-being into their life. Is there any way to help treat quote unquote or process grief when a child is so small that they don't even realize what's happening to them I mean is it it feels like a lot of times it's like well they're gonna have to you're gonna have to process that when you're older or is I mean are there ways that people can look for signs that the little little child is grieving and ways to deal with that when they're so young well, and this is the tough part because really does a parent who is grieving have the capacity to do that for the child, right? And and that's, again, why we get a circle of support, right? Because that what that child needs is to know they're safe and to have their brains are still going to develop. They're going to develop that limbic system, but you may have to have help to do that. So how young is appropriate to see, to have them do some sort of professional or group therapy? Well, I've done as young as two. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I think that you could do younger, um, but have the parent. I mean, again, the parent has to be with them and has to be prepared. The parent has to work on their own stuff. That's what I would recommend for infants. Okay. The parent works on their own grief. They work on decreasing their distress and regulating their internal system. And as they do that and become regulated themselves, they'll provide regulation for their child. Hmm. Right. And if they can't provide regulation for their child, which is okay, they need help. They need help to provide that regulation. Right. So those are some of the best things that parents can do in those situations is, you know, get the support for the child to help the child develop that attachment and those appropriate so things and help yes, them relax. Babies and, and toddlers regulate. and infants are able to pick up on interruptions in life and they still can have grief, even though they aren't able to form coherent thoughts yet in their life. Right. So how, what are some signs that parents can be looking for that show that their baby is in distress from those types of things? Well, that's, that's a good question because I'm not sure it's standard, right? It's across all People, because different kids are going to respond and different children are going to respond in different ways, just like we all do, right? And some of that depends on um, how the mother handles stress, you know, some of the epigenetic stress traits that get passed on from generation to generation, you know, those things are involved. 
but generally what I would watch for in young children, and, and it's not necessarily watch for, assume, I want you to assume that they're grieving. So it's not something that you watch for and say, okay, are they grieving yet? Should I step in and support? I want you to assume the child is grieving and step in and give love and support. Now, you don't have to smother and you don't have to enable, right? Because we don't, you don't want to over, um, what's the word, do for the child what they can and should be doing for themselves. But really erring on the side of love and connection is going to be good generally for the child, right? Not really worrying about that. So overcompensation is one thing that a lot of widowed mm-hmm. parents struggle with. Oh, yeah. That's, it's a big deal. Like they lose a parent, they want, they don't want to have more suffering for their kid, but is it healthy in the long run? How do you address that? Well, this is what we touched on last time is do your own work because a lot of that behavior, that enabling behavior and that overcompensating behavior is based on my own guilt as a parent, having the child, having lost a parent. And here I am trying to make up for the lost parent. Well, I'm not going to be able to do that. And in the meantime, it causes, you know, I like to look at parenting like pool table, right? And that our kids are the pool balls. And that when they're placed in the middle of the pool table, if we were to cover the holes, the kids move in the pool table and they bump up against the sides of the pool table right? That the sides of the pool table provide boundaries. So there's, there's nurturing and love on one, two sides of the, of the pool table. And there's consistency boundaries and limits on the other two sides of the pool table. And if our kids are able to bounce up, they're able to bump up against it and they know where they stand. They know that they're going to eventually bump up against that boundary, bump up against that, that um, experience and that they're going to be safe. And so if I, if I try to compensate, I may, some of the sides of that table may drop off and the child may not experience the boundaries that they need. Does that make sense? So the balls then fall off. So as the balls are hit, they might bump up against your, your uh, nurturing and love, but they drop off of your boundaries, right? Because you have none. And I mean, if you, if you've ever experienced falling asleep and feeling like you're falling as you're falling asleep that, that jolt. Have you guys ever experienced that? Yeah. Imagine that being similar to what kids feel if a parent doesn't provide those limits and boundaries, right? Is all of a sudden they're on their own to do that for themselves. And it's almost like that, you know, experience where you hold your breath and you feel like you're falling and and you're not. Even though kids really don't like rules, they say they don't. Right. But they actually, they do need them. Yeah. Right. They do need them because it it provides children a sense of safety because it's consistency, consistency and safety gives them an area to which to move, which is, I like the pool table analogy because they can move wherever they need to in that area, but they know that it, that there is a boundary, that there's a point to which they cannot drop off. Yeah. Right. And all I can think about is how pool balls are really heavy. And if they fall on your toe, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Yes. So we don't want that. Um, no. I want to ask you more about the boundaries and the rules and the, that kind of a thing in just a second. But I'm also wondering about how old does a child need to be before they can understand 
that their parent has died and what that means. You know, a toddler, a baby doesn't really understand what the loss is. How old do they have to be before they can really, I mean, not fully understand it because I know they have to be much older to understand really what it means. Right. right. You know, when can they kind of understand what's going on? Well, I, I think it probably developmentally has more to do with language right? Okay. And the development mm-hmm. of language. And so as the, as they're able to um, speak and then put meaning and words to what they're experiencing, then that is about the time that you're looking at them starting to understand the concepts and put meaning to experience right now, as far as the extent to which they understand, you know, that remains to be seen. I think they have a visceral memory. I think they know that there's loss. They just don't know exactly what it is or how to describe it. And often it's a body, it's a body sensation or experience, right? How is the best way to talk to very young kids about death? Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff... There is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. That's a good question because it depends on the kid. I would say play is a great way to talk, right? So... In my practice, um, we tend to use a lot of sand play therapy and EMDR to help kids work through their inner world and take their inner world and put it out in front of them. And as a parent, you know, getting on your kid's level, right? You don't want to talk down to your kids because that feels like a, a shutdown experience, you know, for most kids. You do want to get on their level. So sit down by them and, you know, play. So you have it outside let them pick, like, let's say you have a bunch of different stuffed animals and, and you're going to be like, okay, so I want you to let, let's talk about how you're feeling about what happened with your dad, you know, and how, and show me, show me and play it out. And you guys play with the animals or you play with the toys, or maybe you're going to build, um, maybe the child wants to build Legos and maybe they're going to build, um, uh, a book out of Legos and they're going to talk, tell the story right now. Children actually have a very low, um, tolerance for this kind of traumatic revisiting. Right. And so you want to titrate that you want it to be a little bit, these brief moments. So in the moments of like, Hey, let's say you're giving your kids a bath and you're getting them ready for bed and they say I died. Right. And instead of freaking out or thinking, oh, this is it, we're going to talk about this. You may be like, yeah, he did. And we're still here. How do you feel about that? And they may say something and then it's over and you let it be over. 
Does that make sense? I think as a parent, sometimes we want to talk it out and talk it to death. Um, and really the kids need an opportunity to touch it and then drop it, touch it and That's then drop it. And so have it interesting. Yeah. I've seen that over and over and over where it's just like this little snippet and then it's and then it's gone and you do, you kind of prepare yourself for like, okay, this is it. you know, like yeah. we're going to have a big, and then they're like, all right, bye. You know, dad, dad's mm-hmm. dead. Right. Yep. Okay. Bye. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I guess we're done with that. You know, and that's okay. That's actually normal. So infants and children are ready to participate in their own therapy. Did you already ask, did we already, did I already ask you, did we ask you that last time? You no. know what? I think we touched on it and I can't remember. I, they, I think the language thing is an issue. I have done therapy with two-year-olds before, you know, and usually what you do is have the parent in the younger, the kids, the parent comes in and actually does participate and, and provide security to the child during the work. Right. And it's like boring. We're playing, we're maybe talking a little bit and we're doing some EMDR. So there's usually some bilateral stimulation involved as far as they're tapping or the parent is holding the child helping the child tap and maybe telling the story. Right. So that's, that's definitely a possibility. If a child is very young when their parent dies or in the womb and the mother experiences trauma, how does it exhibit later for them as they grow? That's a excellent question. And really it's a somatic response. So somatic is the physical, the body's physical memory of the trauma Right. So often it will be, um, I mean, not often, it it will likely be something physical. It will manifest in a physical manner because they don't know what it is and they might be depressed. They might feel depressed, but they don't know why. Right. I don't know. I've always felt this way. I don't know why I feel this way. Right. It might be a sense of dread, might be a sense of grief. It might be sadness. Right. Or maybe anger even right? Depending on when developmentally the, the events occurred. So I had, and I've done some work on this myself is that my mom, um, had a baby die. He was seven, she was seven months along and he died because, I mean, now they would save those babies, but this was in the seventies and they couldn't save him. And so he died after two of being alive two days. Well, she got pregnant with me about four or five months later. Right. And I've actually done some work on that because I, I have had, again, some experiences of her grief. Wow. Right. Yeah. So, you know, really it does. I mean, those things do affect our children and they feel the vibrations of our grief. Again, it's not bad or wrong to feel that or that our kids feel that that's part of their life experience. However, we want to acknowledge that, be aware of that and create support for them too. Did you have those somatic experiences all your whole entire life? And then as an adult, you figured out, oh, this is what it is. Let me take care of it. What was that like? It wasn't the somatic experience of trauma that pushed me into therapy. Actually, it was learning EMDR and being part of that process and actually doing some of my own work and wanting to work on those things and knowing the story. Because I knew cognitively the story I'd been taught that there that had happened. Does that make sense? And then looking at it through the adaptive information processing model, which is Francine Shapiro, who is the the mother of EMDR, basically, um, she views the lifespan as those experiences that contribute to how we see and 
and experience things in the present, right? So it's those trauma colored glasses that we, I think, talked a little bit about. And so looking back at my life and that story with those glasses on, I was like, oh, that's totally a stuck point for me. And I wanted to do that work. Does that make sense? So it did come from a cognitive place. But uh, as I did the work, I noticed, oh, there's part of me that's believed I was not wanted, right? I didn't even realize that was there or how that came out, right? So those beliefs can be attached to those experiences and we don't even realize that we're there. And I think it just took me going, oh, that would have been a traumatic experience. I had I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. It's so fascinating because a lot of people think if they're not exhibiting signs that are somatic or or that are not presenting themselves in certain ways that they don't have any residual trauma, I guess. Right. And and so finding out what the issue is is such a huge part of the process of course like everybody says acknowledging is the first step so right I think that's amazing that you're able to to go into your body and use those modalities and, and yeah process that that's amazing yeah it was a real it was a gift for sure about EMDR you mentioned in the first episode that children's brains actually are really good at recovering yes from yeah. trauma right yep. so what is EMDR like for a child versus an adult? So really it's about getting on a child's level and doing it in a way that makes sense to them. So when I work with kids, I'll let them kind of pick. So EMDR, for those who are not aware, is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I think we did talk about just kind of the basics of that. But what we're doing is we're using alternating bilateral stimulation to address stuck material right? So traumatic material can be big T material or little t material. Does that make sense? Um, And as those experiences are stuck, we need to get those to move and get processed and put into the memory, put into the, the library, I like to say, on the shelf, right? Kind of tucked away where it needs to be rather than out in the forefront all the time and affecting our current behaviors and current experience. So back to using it with kids is I'm going to get on their level. We're going to do it in a way that works for them. And often that includes like using finger puppets or we'll use sand play therapy. And we have cool devices now where you can actually, they're little, um, I call them tappers, but they're, they buzz. And so there's a one, the kid, I can put them in their pockets. I can say, okay, put these in your pockets or your socks. And they buzz back and forth while we do sand play therapy, right? Or while we do art therapy. Um, and these are experience and we're actually kind of allowing, we're using these other modalities plus the alternating bi- bilateral simulation to help the clients, the children get some of these important experiences out. So if you're an adult who has a hard time with EMDR, do you just feel confused by it? Can you do like <laughs> children's EMDR for adults? Like dumb it down. I don't want to say dumb it down because that makes it sound well, Bad, simplify but, it. It's not yeah. dumbing down. It's really just simplifying that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think yeah. I want to do it with like sand trays and Legos and puppets. Yeah, me too. I want to do art. Yeah. Therapy. Sounds way more fun. And it can be. Yeah, for sure. 
So what does art therapy look like? Obviously, like doing art, but what are some of the ways that you do that in therapy? Well, there's a there's a lot of different ways, right? So it, I don't want to limit it, but there's some of the ways are you can ask the client to draw a picture of their experience with their dad dying, right? Or draw a picture of their experience with this thing happening. And they can draw that picture while they're doing, if I'm doing EMDR, I might do the bilateral, or I might have them draw the picture and then we process it and talk about it. And then we may do EMDR around it later. And then the picture can change. So I might, they might draw a picture, we do EMDR, and then I'll have them do it again and see if the picture changes, right? So that's one way. Other ways are using tissue paper to create, uh, you know, in Inside Out, the the Pixar film, right? So they have these characters and sometimes I'll say, okay, use tissue paper, colors and shapes to show kind of internally what's happening for you in your body, what emotions you feel, what feelings you have. So it helps to identify and put this tactile and colorful like example on paper. So my, my kids, when they've gone to therapy, I've gone in with I've gone in with them sometimes and they'll do art type things and, and I'll participate. And I actually have found it really helpful for me too. you know, color your heart and show us what colors, you know, and what those represent. And I'm like, I feel a lot better after doing that. And my, yeah, like, eh, yeah. whatever, it was fine. <laughs> so yeah. That's- well, it's using the different parts of the brain, right. To resolve and to heal. That's yeah. all. So if, if a mom or a dad or whoever the surviving parent is, if they're doing really well and they're, they're getting the help they need, they're doing the work that they need to do, is it possible that the infant or the child will have really no effects from the death of their parent? I mean, is it a given that they're going to have trauma from that? Or is it more, like we were saying before, it is really affected by their surviving parents well-being i love your question anita and i think the answer is it depends i know that's a (laughs) really popular answer um just because so let's just talk a little bit about the aces test that or the aces survey that came out years ago so that's the adverse childhood experiences survey they interviewed i want to say the the cdc interviewed fifteen thousand adults and kind of took 10 random um, adverse experiences that children can have. And then they inferred from the experience of that, they inferred some things about people's health in the present. And what they discovered was, you know, I mean, I don't have it right in front of me, but that you're, you are, if you scored a three out of 10, you're like 300% more likely to potentially come down with anxiety disorder, a major depressive disorder, or an autoimmune disorder, right? So diabetes, heart disease, other complicated, you know, other like RA, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, those, those types of things, uh, or Crohn's disease or whatever it is. So those, and then as your score gets higher, as you, like, let's say you had, you had been sexually abused, you had a parent go to jail, you know, your score gets higher, then it becomes like, much more likely that those things occur. It doesn't mean they will occur. It just means they're more likely. And so that goes with genetics. You're going to be genetically predisposed to, if you have experiences like this, you may be genetically predisposed to have some of these outcomes. And it's possible because of the death 
and the trauma surrounding the death, and maybe even your parents' response to the death of their spouse, that that becomes your experience and then that influences your genes and how, how those things manifest. But it doesn't mean it causes it. It doesn't mean it totally happens every time. You could, you could be an infant and a, or a child and have the death of a parent and live a completely healthy, uh, resilient life, right? But it doesn't mean that you will avoid it completely. It may mean you have it later in life. You have some of those responses later in life. You know, it, it depends, right, on a lot of different factors that roll into how these things are manifest in our life later on. I like that though, just kind of the statistics of it, that the more you add up terrible things as a child, the more likely you are to experience some, some hard from physical things yeah, yeah. and emotional yeah. things. And that's not wrong or bad. And that doesn't mean like your body is weak and therefore this thing happened, mm-hmm. right? It really is. You know what? The more we, more information we can get out there, the more we can support people with a trauma-informed approach and really love and help people, the better off we're all going to be down the road, right? You just said Mel's favorite words, trauma-informed. Oh, good. Ring a bell right now. I'm all about (laughs) trauma-informed approaches. (laughs) I know. I always say this, and Anita's like, "Whatever, Mel, shut up." (laughs) But it's trauma-informed approaches are finally becoming more prevalent I feel like in the media and in social media and all that stuff it is and thank you Oprah for the book right it's astounding how many people are sufferers of sufferers of trauma and you know are facing it now so have you noticed in the past few years in your practice that there are more parents that are more informed I I actually think that there are there are some who are very aware and who, who probably would have been aware already. You know, I think there are some who are aware of their own stuff. And then there are a lot of people who are really afraid of their own stuff and therefore don't want to see it in their kids. I can't tell you how many parents want to bring their kids to therapy and drop them off to get fixed and don't want to participate in the and I'm raising like, my hand. Like, can't you just fix my kids? That would just be great. And not I don't, me. I don't, I don't, I don't have to do any work. <laughs> right. Them. Yeah. And I think that that's, a, that's actually more common, Melanie. I would say that that's more common, right? Yeah, is that interesting. we don't want to see because it's, there's pain there. There's some pain there. And our bodies are naturally in a way that we want to be in denial about some of our own pain and not have to feel it. And we're going to avoid. And having our own kids in pain there is nothing that puts us in pain more than seeing them suffer as a parent. This kind of leads me into the next question I have for you. And that is, we are asked to do this impossible task. And the impossible task is to care for our children's grief on top of just caring for children in general, which is also impossible at the same time that we're experiencing our own grief, which is just tremendous. Do you have any recommendations for us, how we can help our kids when we don't even feel like we can help ourselves when we don't feel like we're doing well? How do we do that? I mean, it seems like, it seems like you're drowning and then people are like, go save your kids. Go save. Yeah. And you're like, I can't save my kids. I'm drowning right now. Right. But, But that's the expectation. 
It is the expectation. And I want to emphasize something really important is you as a parent, the best thing you can do for your children in a grief situation like this is to create a circle of support because you cannot do it. All right. Because let's say you're in your grief. Okay. We take the, the, the Dan Siegel model of the brain and we look at where you are in your grief and you're in fight or flight or shut down. Mm -hmm. Can you parent effectively there? No, No. I couldn't parent effectively before. Right. Good point. (laughs) I mean, that's just the reality is we're learning as parents. Our kids did not come with a manual. We are not taught how to parent other than what we got from our parents. And sometimes that was dysfunctional, right? What not right or wrong. It just sometimes didn't work and we don't want to parent that way. And in a grief situation, you are not going to be your best self. Okay. So get over the fact that you think you need to be and create a circle of support. Ask for help. One of the things that people in grief assume is that others are going to know what they need. People do not know what you need. They cannot read your mind. And so your job is to humble yourself enough to ask for the help that you need. Now, you may not know exactly what that is, but you could approach someone, a friend or a parent and say, look, I don't know what I need, but this is what I'm feeling. Can you help me? And maybe their ideas and time commitment can support and help. And so your kids need that. They need that support. They need that connection, right? The biggest thing you can do for your kids and yourself in grief is create connection and belonging. So you, you garner the help of this circle of support. We, we get the village we get the village involved. I like the idea of we're making connections and support, but we're not necessarily taking that all upon ourselves either, that their connection has to be with us. We can say, you know what, they're going to have four moms now. (laughs) And those moms are going to be, yeah, your neighbors and, and all of those, those people who are around you. What about people who really feel isolated or don't feel like they have a lot of support? They're away from family or they, you know, maybe their parents aren't able to help them. They don't have a good relationship with those people. Then what do they do? Yeah, that is a really, that's, that's a good question. And I think the answer is going to vary per person. So the first thing I would suggest is really look at yourself and go, am I blocking people from being let in? You know, is there a part of me that's keeping people at a distance? Cause I don't want to be seen as weak or needy. Right. And maybe I'm not letting people in because I don't want to be vulnerable in that way and taking a look at that and maybe getting some help around those thoughts, because I think there are people out there who are going to be willing to help. Right. Maybe that it maybe it's going to be the neighbor across the street who um, doesn't know you very well, but is is willing to uh, make sure that your groceries are taken care of for a few for a while you know, as far as going to pick them up or making sure, you know, whatever, like being willing to ask for that help. The other piece is there's a lot of, there is some community support around grief. There are grief groups out there. There are other people that you can connect to now, as far as I think you can get emotional support from those groups. I think there are also um, programs, right? Like, like CHIP, Right. So if you need some support from like with the insurance piece or you need some support. And I think those who who need 
you know, more support around legal aid and being able to access their spouse's uh, 401k or whatever needs to happen. You know, though there are some resources out there. You guys' podcast, you know, is probably a resource for people, I would think. You know, I, hope where they so. can come, I hope so too. Cause I think that's <laughs> the purpose, right. Is they yeah. get to come listen and maybe hear some successes and some failures and learn from those things. Right. We also have a private Facebook group too, just to establish community. And we've heard from members in there that they're in therapy and they're also in our group and that the community just provides an extra piece in their healing yeah. and it's essential. So I wanted to ask you about the therapeutic elements for the moms or the parents of these kids. Cause sometimes funds are tight, you know, there's a lot of situations going on. And so a lot of times the therapy goes to the kids and the moms don't get their own therapy. <laughs> Will you please talk about that, please? Well, we want everyone to have therapy. At least I do. <laughs> this is again, that oxygen mask analogy, right? Is that you got to put your own on first before you can help your kids, right? So if there is a question of getting help, I know that it's our first instinct to serve our kids first, but I would say, put your mask on first, go get the help that you need first. Now, as far as cost-effective, like let's say you don't have insurance or you don't, you know, there's not money to do that. There are some, most therapy offices will offer a sliding scale so they'll do it for a less costly price. Catholic Community Services has free services. They offer therapy. Um, uh, LDS Family Services uh, offer therapy. And through it, you can talk to your ecclesiastical leaders, your, your spiritual leaders, both with the Catholic Church. I think even the Lutheran Church has and offers uh, here in the state of Utah some, some services. So it is really about you know, being able to find those resources. Um, also, there are community resources. Um, the Jordan School District has a enrichment center and they offer therapy for the kids, right? At a no cost rate. Wow, right? really? Yes. So they do, I think they do, a, it's a limited session, right? Of course, it's not going to be like long, long-term, but it is something and they offer parenting classes and things like that as well. So those are all free services through the school districts. Um, but there are, there are some options, you know, and, then, and, and if in doubt, ask. Yeah, that's probably a, a, you have to figure out what it's like in your community because, you know, everybody's all over the place. But it's probably true that there's other, you know, resources for all of the places you are. The other thing is that our podcast has a sponsorship with BetterHelp, the online therapy company. Awesome. And I know that people get a discount for the first month uh, if they sign up with our link, but also on the site, if people are having a hard time with finances, then they offer assistance. So right. there are, it sounds like a lot of options out there. Check in your area if you're listening. Check with your community. Check with your church if you're a churchgoer. If you're not, there are a lot of nonprofits out there, there that I know are dedicated to these things. It's just a matter of finding them. And there so. are grief groups attached to a lot of hospice organizations. So like different hospices, like if you've been involved with a hospice, often the hospice um, will, and those are the nursing, the skilled nursing that comes in and, you know, helps with end of life or palliative care for, for people. And if you haven't been, you can call them 
if, if you weren't involved, if it was, you know, something that you weren't involved with, you can still participate in those groups. I think they're free. Okay. So if you're a mom and you're drowning and we're asking for community support, what, and I know you're going to say it depends. Don't even say it depends. Okay. I won't okay. say it. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, what should our priority be? You know, if we only have the bandwidth to focus on a very few things, is there something that we really should be focusing on being the one to do with our kids? Does that question make sense? Um, I think it does. And that, let me just clarify to make sure that we're on the same page. So let's say you're drowning, you're overwhelmed. What is something I can do to create the biggest bang for my buck, so to speak, in the yeah. moment? Is that what you're saying? Yes, but this is like in my brain what I was thinking. You know, is it most important that they feel safe? Is it most important that they know that I am there for them? Is it most important that they know? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yes, yes, yes. So the number one need is belonging and connection. Okay, if they can, if they feel belonging, and they feel connected, those are resiliency factors. So no matter what grief they're having, no matter what emotional stuff they're having, no matter what, they know that there's connection and belonging, they're gonna be far better off than a kid who has no place, right? Or a kid who's pushed away. But that state, that belonging connection can be from a group of people, right? It can. Yep. Is there one thing that we really want to make sure that our kids are getting from us and only us? The thing that came to mind, honestly, is realness, being able to like see you grieve and then being able to see you recover and being able to look them in the eye while you grieve and weep and then having them watch you laugh and heal. Being real with your kids and not protecting them you know I I mean you want to protect them but I think protecting them by pretending like you don't feel that doesn't help allowing them to see you feel and regulate and recover that will help because they go oh I can do that too it's safe to feel what I need to feel (laughs) boom (laughs) mic drop Kendall has spoken Is there a limit to that? There are boundaries. Yes, Anita, there are boundaries, right? I cannot use my child as my therapist. Mm -hmm. Which would be way cheaper. So it's too bad. It would be. And a lot of people do it. In the short term, maybe. (laughs) Right. In the short term, but later, you're going to have to pay for their therapy. No, I think there are parents who parentify children after the death of a spouse. So they'll, an older child, they'll make an older child kind of like a partner. And have them be a parent. And I think that there naturally is probably some of that because they need help with maybe younger children. Yeah. Right. But be very cautious about doing that. I would much rather you have a circle of support and your tribe to participate than put all of that weight on one child. Well, that's something that is a really hard line for me to walk. It's like, you're not the parent, but I do need your help, but you're not the parent. So, and it's always this, well, what am I, you know, not the parent, right? But I do need your help. And I think to notice that, like, if you're starting to rely, so you have to notice and identify if you start to, (laughs) as a parent, 
rely and notice that you're relying on that child a lot and putting some of your own needs on that child, that's a cue that you've crossed the line. That's a, that's a physical cue that you've brought an emotional cue that you've crossed the line and you haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad or wrong because you parentified a kid, but it is not going to work for that kid long-term and that's something, and it's not going to work for you long-term because that kid's going to need to separate and develop. And so you need to catch yourself doing that and go, okay, I need to consciously and deliberately change the way I'm approaching this kid and do it a little different. So we have a lot of people who ask questions about how we hold our kids responsible when we also know that they're going through a really tough time. How do we have those boundaries, have those rules, have those expectations without feeling guilty about making it their life harder in essence, because we know that they are also suffering. Well, holding space for the suffering is really important. And it's okay to say, say such, right? So I think Mel actually brought this up earlier too. How do we not enable the kids? How do we hold boundaries and not be um, causing more harm or damage, right? And I really love um, those of you who are familiar with Love and Logic. I mean, I think that there's some very positive things in the Love and Logic stuff. And there, there's a book, uh, there's several books for Love and Logic, but there's Love and Logic for Teens, you know, and, and really they help you go, you know what, I need you to understand this and this is why, and this is what I need you to do, right? But being as consistent as possible and saying ahead of time, setting these boundaries and rules or expectations ahead of time and make sure they're reasonable, right? I'm not going to give a six-year-old 15 chores to do on Saturday just because, right? I'm going to make it reasonable. I need to make it age appropriate, developmentally appropriate, right? A kid can make their, a six-year-old can make his bed, right? So you can say, but maybe during the week, you say, you don't have to make your bed during the week. On busy day, school days, you don't have to make your bed. But on the weekends, I want you to make your bed. You know, work with the kid on what developmentally they can do. Give them a break where they can have a break. But keep having some consistency and some expectations. Because them having a job, kids need jobs. They need to feel like that's part of their connection and belonging in the family is having a job. Right? So if your job, hey, you're in charge of getting the mail every day. This is your job, right? And this is something a kid can expect every day. They know it's their job and it helps them feel a part of the family and like they're doing something. Is it reasonable to expect them to increase their participation in caring for the house and the family needs because you've lost one person in the family? I mean, I always talk to my kids about how we're a team and we're missing one of our players. So is it reasonable to say we all have to do extra because one of our players is gone or is that an unreasonable thing? And I just need to figure out how to get the extra stuff done. Ooh, that's a really great, great question. And I don't totally know the answer to that other than trying to balance with each kid, what they, what they can contribute. Right. And what they, what they, what feels like too much. And you're going to know, right? How do you know? Everything feels too much to them. (laughs) Well, how do you know when they're overwhelmed? How do you know when your kids are overwhelmed? They go bananas. Yeah. They're going to tantrum. They're going to, you know, be, uh, 
really sensitive and overstimulated, like kids, you, you know, your children, you know what they can tolerate. And it's okay to say stuff like, Hey, this is what the expectation is. And if you don't get to it, that doesn't mean you're bad or wrong. We're all going to survive. This is what needs to happen. And you give them like, Hey, let's have that. Let's work on this stuff as a family and this team every Saturday from 10 to 12. And then we're done. Limit the amount of time that's spent because those that can be overwhelming to the kids and they also need playtime, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, as part of the healing, they need to know that life can be fun again. They need to know that there's good. They need those positive resources in order to heal. Right. And so we don't just like, oh, we should all be depressed. We should all be grieving. We should all shut down. We need to feel those things and we need the positive to help them get through. It's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, I'm it just, is a lot. School just let out for the summer. And so now it's like, I'm trying to entertain them and help them to do chores, you know, and it's just like, there's in also, I have to work and take care of the food and, you know, do all of the things. And it's just like, it's, it's too much. And sometimes it is. I remember being a young mom and having two, um, two under two at the time. And I remember being really sick one day. I had, I had like, I think I had pneumonia actually. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was super sick. I could not get out of bed. I was like, had a fever and I was just so sick and I felt so guilty, right. That they seriously, they sat on the floor and played with toys and we, I had Sesame street on or something almost all day. I will just say this is, and I was really, I felt guilty and I felt terrible and what a terrible mom I was being. Right. And somebody reminded me that there is a time and a season, you know, and that there is, it is okay to rest. It is okay to breathe. It is okay to sometimes let your kids sit on TV all day. If you're crippled emotionally or physically, a day of TV is not going to make a child or break a child. What about a lot of days of TV. I mean, honestly, I've had to say to myself, my kids are not going to get the same experience that they were going to get if dad was here. And I have had to just come to terms with that fact. And that means that, yes, they are going to watch a lot more TV than they would have had we been in that situation. And that is a hard thing, but something that almost you have to come to terms with. And be really compassionate about. Mm-hmm right? This is a time and a season. Your season is long. When a spouse dies, your season is long. Plus my kids have learned a lot of things from PBS. I'm just saying. Right. (laughs) So, you know, direct them in, you know, there are better, there is better TV than others. That's true. How do we deal with kids who use the, my dad is dead card to get out of stuff at school. Oh, I'm, I'm not one. speaking from experience at all. I have one son who comes home from a field trip and he's got this hat. And I said, where did you get that hat? And he said, oh, my friend's mom bought it for me. And he goes, it wasn't very much. It was only $25. And I'm like, um, that's kind of a lot. And he yeah. goes, I just told her that my dad died and she bought it for me. And I was like, okay, we can't do that. Can we? We can't do that. <laughs> oh. Oh, I love how creative his brain was, right? But how beautiful is that, that his brain has figured out a way to like, I can get some needs met. 
through this, right? It's not bad or wrong, but again, it's part of that pool table analogy, right? This is a learning and growth experience for you and for the kid, right? Is It's like, yeah, your dad did die, you know, and it's nice for people to do nice things for you, but you can also use that to your advantage. And what does that come out as? What does that look like? And how does that feel long-term and have the kids reason it out and work, work on it with you and grow from that experience, right? It's not wrong or bad that he got something for nothing. I mean, not that that's nothing, but like, it's not wrong or bad. It's actually pretty brilliant. However, it's not going to be brilliant all the time. And it's something that you guys want to address and talk about. How do you know if you're using people? It's also something at school. Like I can't do that schoolwork because my dad died. And I'm like, well, I mean, I, I do have a hard time figuring out when that is a valid excuse and when it's just an excuse because he's learned that this will get him out of anything. Yeah. I don't want to do that assignment. My dad died. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do that chore. My dad died. Right. And, and you're going to know, and he's going to know, and you can say, you can continue to use that if you want, but if you continue to use that, you'll lose opportunities to figure out how to do this and to survive. And you're going to need that too. You know, you need to learn how to be resilient. You need to learn how to, you know, get your homework done. Isn't that something that you want to do so that you can be independent someday? Yeah. No. So like less, <laughs> less of throwing down the hammer and more of teaching them how to internally find a solution. Right. Perhaps. Well, I feel like he's really proud of himself because he's like, I found the solution. So why do I need to figure out anything else? Well, see how brilliant that is. Yeah. And sometimes with kids like that, I will compliment. I will say like, wow, what a great way that your brain figured out how to get your needs met. I'm wondering if there are some healthy ways that don't include you using your dad's death as a, as the bridge. Why don't, let's think of other ways you can ask to get your needs met or that you can get your needs met that fit a little better, that feel a little better. Yeah. I guess it's also a question of, is that really a need? And probably it's a need that's maybe not actually the hat, you know, or it's not actually the, the school. It's, it's the need to feel special or it's the need to feel that little boost of like, somebody's nice to me. Right. Or that I'm important. Yeah. I'm a value. And, or it could be like, I just felt crappy today and I didn't feel, I felt lonely or I felt like I was grieving. Like I'm feeling sad about dad being gone. I'm feeling sad about dad being gone. And some lady, nice lady bought me a hat. It wasn't even that much. much. (laughs) Also at that point in time, I was like, okay, we also need to have a lesson about money and what constitutes and what's much a lot and what's not a lot. Kendell, do you have any other words, parting words of wisdom that you feel like would really benefit us? Um, I would say the number one thing that feels like that needs to be said is to be very kind to yourselves. It is, like you said, Anita, an impossible situation sometimes. And it's easy to, it makes it worse when we beat ourselves up over these impossible situations and, and put meaning that maybe we failed. And I would just ask all your listeners to really look at how you can be compassionate and to be kind to yourself in these impossible situations and allow for grace, you know, 
you're not going to be getting it right all the time. And it doesn't mean you're a bad parent or bad person and moving to forgiveness a lot quicker. So be kind to yourself. Thank you so much, Kendall, for joining us. Not once, but twice. I'm special. (laughs) Well, thanks guys. I'm excited for you. This is a great thing you're doing. So the queen has spoken. Oh, Queen Kendall for president. Yes. Wait, that was queen. I know. I was like, that was an oxymoron. We hope all. (laughs) Wait, wait. Speaking of queens, do you think Queen Elizabeth needs help on how to parent her kids? Now that she's a Do you widow? think that she pe- she parented her kids at all? No. <laughs> I think that's what you're seeing is the attachment dilemma Ooh. of the situation. And she did, she grew up with that. She had it herself. They are raised by nannies. Generational. Yes. All I know about the, the queen is from the crown. So I don't know anything. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Me too. Oh, man. <laughs> but see, everybody's got their stuff. Even the queen. I know, and she's rich. She could pay for all the therapy. But see, the ther- paying for the therapy is not the key. Connection and belonging is the key, and she did not, and probably has not provided that. Come on, Queen Liz, we can we can get you a ten percent discount so you can connect. That's right. Thank you so much for being here, Kendall. It is so great to always have trauma-informed perspectives from professionals that actually know what they're talking about. We appreciate it so much. We're in a position where we have a lot of people that look to us for help, but of course we are not professionals. And so we really, really are grateful for you and sharing your knowledge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope all of our listeners have found this helpful. We're thankful for all of the people who submitted questions that we could ask to Kindell. Remember to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDN. The Widow Wives Club, we touched on that. It's a great community to be able to feel support and just know that you're not alone in the craziness and the impossible situations, whether you're a parent or whether you're not a parent. Like me. Like Mel. And... We hope you will join us next time. Until then, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. I'm Kendall. And we're just two young widows and one trauma-informed queen slash president. And we're trying to figure out <laughs> widow we do now. Woo-hoo! Yes. If only y'all could see the Zoom. <laughs> this is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money.
And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.